from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. I first met Kevin Kelly when I was teaching a class in online community design at Stanford University. Some of my students were in the beta program for Ultima Online, an early MMO. And Kevin talked me into writing about my experiences in Britannia for Wired Magazine. That cover story led to me working with Richard Garriott, Star Long, Raf Koster, Neil Young, and the whole Ultima Online team on social systems design. Kevin is a multi-talented and deeply insightful creator. His latest book, The Inevitable, forecasts 12 technological forces that will shape the next 30 years and weaves together a convincing story about how these forces are shaping our world. Once you have things that are more fluid and dynamic and flexible and in flux, then that allows all these other things to happen, like what we can deliver them on demand, there's a shift from owning things to accessing things, there's a shift even in the way that we understand how things are true, because there's no longer fixed authorities, there's much more of a kind of a networked truth that you have to assemble yourself. So, so the ramifications go across the board. Listen in as Kevin explains how technology is changing us and how we can harness these forces to chart out a successful path into the future. Welcome, Kevin, to the Getting to Alpha podcast. It's a real honor and privilege to be here, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. It's a real full circle moment for me because you really helped to launch my career in online gaming. And so I'm really excited about your new book. I've read it. I've listened to it on tape. I've made a chart of all the different ideas in it. It's really awesome. Now, some people don't know you that well. So give us a whirlwind tour of your background. In particular, how did you get started in tech? And how did you decide what to pursue along the way? What were those key turning points that changed your course? Yeah, I was um, basically kind of a technologist, less kind of a low-tech hippie, mostly drifting in Asia. I owned a camera. I later owned a bicycle, but not much more than that. And I had a kind of a very familiar, not distaste, but um, skepticism of technology, which I thought was in terms of kind of cold and maybe hard and was something that you wanted to keep at arm's length. That changed when I had the opportunity to plug a computer into the phone jack and discovered that on this other side was a opening world of communities and experiences that seemed to me to be more organic and flexible and human scale, and we could only call it technological, but it wasn't technology as I imagined it. It was new kind of technology or a different face of it. And and over time, as these technological digital tools became more and more prevalent, I, I, I saw a different face of technology. So I became a little bit more interested in it and more involved in it. And eventually, I became basically full-time in trying to understand it. And that was the big moment for me, and that was around 1981 or so. 
And then what happened? As uh, I became more involved in it and I was trying to understand it more, I was starting to write. I, I began as a photographer in Asia and then I gradually drifted to writing about travel. And the very first big article I ever did was called Network Nation. And I treated this uh, opening territory as if it was a foreign country and I was going to write a travel piece and I would go and try and describe this new world as if it was you know exotic country and from there i began to try and understand it more i the second maybe galvanizing moment was when i went to my very first scientific conference um, which happened to be the first artificial life conference at los alamos national labs which was basically a call out in the very embryonic um, internet in like 1989 or something was if you're doing uh, research in, in artificial life, come to this conference and talk about it. So all these very unusual people who are doing very, very diverse things came together. And I basically blogged, which we would now say I blogged the conference, every talk, I wrote a summary of it and posted it online. And in that moment of listening, I got this vision that there was that this technology that I was so interested in um, now this computer kind of stuff was actually it was more organic and human skill because it, in fact it was much more biological and that there was this sort of biological face to technology that I had never seen and so I began to write and research about this idea that technology was basically a extension of evolution in life there was the, the the two were were very were two faces of the same god it was there were there were the two facets of the same thing and from that came my first book which i wrote called out of control which was trying to describe how this technology was becoming we were importing biological principles into it in order to make it more complex and, and usable to us, so that in fact it really was sort of more organic in that sense, and that sort of has informed a lot of what I do now and where I went, even with Wired, which was looking at this stuff that we're making as being derived from the same fundamental principles that has created all life around us, our own lives, and our own minds. Symbiosis. Kind of. It's sort of, I mean, eventually I think there is aspects of, of technology where we will again bind the mechanical and the organic together. I think there is that. But just that even when we don't, even when there's, you know, there's just uh, the internet, it's going to increasingly behave more as if it was a living thing. The line between that and your current book is very clear. <laughs> And I love the way that you really tease that out and give this very prescient advice to people. And your new book is called The Inevitable. And in that, you're describing how technology is really changing our world and how we're shaping ourselves with technology. What I want to know, how did writing this book, because you've been writing it for how long now? Now it's published, but how long have you been working on it? There are pieces that I began 10 years ago writing on it. Okay. So how did writing this book and getting to the finish line, which we'll get back to, how did that deepen your understanding of where tech was headed? In the course of in the last 10 years, I would say, in reading and researching this book and the previous book, What Technology Wants, I had a complete 
kind of change of mind in the process of writing it, and that is I, against my you know, wishes, I, I, I became convinced that technology is deterministic in a certain sense, that there are some things inevitable about it, that sequence of it is kind of almost developmental rather than evolutionary, meaning that there's, you know, we go through some predetermined stages, say on any planet that might occur on. And, and that was not the, this idea of sort of seeing that we, there were some aspects of technology that we didn't have much choice about, including the discovery, the fact that, that most technology is, or if not all technology is being simultaneously independently discovered around the world so so that when it, when it's ready many people will have the same idea this instead of the heroic visionary that invents things themselves this, these are these are things that are kind of going to happen no matter who who discovers them that position was not what i thought i would become or go towards the evidence sort of just compelled me to reluctantly accept that and i think writing it over time i i became more and more aware that we needed to accept and embrace the certain aspects of technology which were going to come anyway and maybe give ourselves focus on the parts that we could change. So the idea is is that the, the large-scale genre-level trends are inevitable, whereas the specific particular species of things are completely unpredictable. And by the way, they, they make a huge difference to us. So, so the the analogy I might say is like you can imagine raining falling down onto a valley, and at the bottom which, which is a river. So the, the the pathway of a particular raindrop as it as it falls down the hillside is completely unpredictable. But the direction is inevitable, which is downward. So the particulars we can't the particular product or species or company is unpredictable. Yet this direction is inevitable, is known. It's, it's going to go, keep going down, and so the internet would be at the level of of a valley, which is is going to happen. But the character of the internet, whether it's national, or international, open or closed, commercial or nonprofit, those are not decided. Those are not inevitable. Those are not predictable, and that and that character makes a huge difference to us. And so I became convinced that we kind of have to embrace these larger inevitabilities of more tracking, more AI, more interaction, more copying, more sharing, so that in order that we can then steer it in the particulars, that we can't, if we prohibit stuff or try to stop it or try to outlaw it or turn it off or turn it down, then we can't steer. And so it's by embracing these things in their largest view that we can actually then determine and choose the particulars. So in that way, you're providing a roadmap for those who choose to see it that way and get out ahead of what's happening. And I love that idea of steering. A lot of what's really interesting to me about what you describe in this book, to me, I'm seeing this vision for a collective and connected world where products morph into services and content is supplanted by experiences And what product development means is a continuous feedback loop with customers for something you're delivering that never stops evolving. Yeah, that's correct. I think you put your finger on it very well, which is that the general arc of a lot of these trends have something in common, which is that um, there is this move from the solid and the material 
the nouns to verbs and the fluid and the immaterial, where the, yes. you, you have emphasis instead of on products, you have it on services. And so that's true in general. And that's actually, there's evidence in the, in, in, in the data that that's actually happening, where things are becoming more uh, dematerialized. And so that general shift is fundamental. So once you have things that are more fluid and dynamic and flexible and in flux, then that allows all these other things to happen, like what we can deliver them on demand, the shift from owning things to accessing things, there's a shift even in the way that we understand how things are true, because there's no longer fixed authorities, there's much more of a kind of a networked truth that you have to assemble yourself. So, so the ramifications go across the board. Yep. And that's all part of a larger trend that's very impactful in my world, which is toward building systems rather than, say, building web pages or building apps. And uh, Paul Adams, who is one of the really interesting people in the internet design world, he's a VP of product to Intercom, told me that his toughest UX recruiting challenge is that so many people don't think in terms of systems. And he believes the future is systems. And I see systems thinking embedded in all your work. Yeah, that's a really good point that I don't think other people have noticed as, as much as you have. And, and that is is that fluidity is really based on the fact that there's these systems. And the systems have their own behavior. And that's, and that's where some of the biases and what I call the leanings or the directions in technology comes from is the fact that it's a system. So, so right now, your pen and your shoe and your car and your stairway, which are all technology, those aren't alive. But the system of all these technologies together, which are interdependent, codependent, and they, you need a, a drill press to make a computer and a computer to make a drill press. So, so there's these cursive connections. These are systems. So that the system of technology, which I call the technium, does behave as if it was a living thing because they it has these recurring it's patterns. It's a system. And you're right. I mean, I think if I had to add to my short list of things to teach in school, it would be system thinking in addition to, you know, I would add it to my techno literacy list of learning how to learn, critical thinking, and then systems thinking would certainly be on that list. How did you become a systems thinker? You told us about your background. How and when did you become and how did you learn to be a systems thinker? Yeah, that's a good. All I know is that when I read the Whole Earth Catalog the last year of high school, there was a, a section of the Whole Earth Catalog by Stuart Brand, which was this Bible for back to the landers, do yourself hippies who wanted to build their own house and grow their own food and, and you know, start a, a small business. There was a chapter or a section in the book called Whole Systems. And Somehow, I just, I, I'm going to use the word, I grokked that. I, you absorbed it. You I, grokked I, I, it. I, I, yeah, I, everyone should know what grok means <laughs> for those because it's a great reference. Right, exactly. It's a reference to Stranger... Heinlein. Robert Heinlein's yeah. story. Where grok where it means basically to deeply understand, almost yes. be the level of uh, cognition where you just kind of... Um, you're in tune with it. Yes, like your vision in Los Yeah, exactly. You're right. So, so I, I somehow I just immediately understood what it was. And I don't know why, but I just intuitively said, yeah, I, I get this. This is like, this is key. This is important. And what Stuart Brand was doing with the catalog was giving resources. And I probably delved into the resources and they probably became 
more literate in that way, and which only encouraged me to think more. So, so uh, yeah, you're right. I, I do think in terms of systems, and I think technology is one of our systems, and it is a system. It's not a thing. It's a system. And so applying that systems thinking is, I think, a key skill, really, right now to doing anything in today because that's what we're dealing with. And systems have their own antics. We, there's a great book out written long ago called the um, System Antics. And it's a little it's a little lighthearted, but it actually there's a lot of profound wisdom in it. And it's talking about you know the general principles of systems, how they tend to want to persevere, how the only way to make a big complicated system that works is to start with a small system that works and you kind of make it more complex. And there's some basic understandings about how systems work. Which That's I've, actually one of the quotes I start my uh, programs with is every complex system started as a simple system that worked. Right, exactly. It's so true. And I learned all that in gaming and game design because you're building all kinds of systems. It's totally systems engineering. You mentioned Stuart Brand and I know you've mentioned him as a real influence and you know compadre in all of this. Now he wrote an amazing book called How Buildings Learn. He did. There's a thread between that and your book, because that's a counterintuitive idea for a lot of people. Building is solid and you just make it. But, you know, you also bring up some counterintuitive ideas about technology and how fluid it is. So was that like an influence on you? I'm sure it must have been an influence. But Stuart and I, we interact probably every other day for the past 35 years. So so I'm undoubtedly I'm, I'm influenced by that idea. So in brief, he, he sees buildings as basically things that change constantly over time. And that to make the best kind of building, you actually want to make it with the foreknowledge that it's going to change. And so that's one of the arguments you'd have against kind of these uh, buildings as sculpture, as kind of art, because they're not really made to adapt. But he said all good buildings are in constant evolution as they adapt to how they're being used by the people who are using them and so you ideally want to make something a building that is changeable at some level mm-hmm. and because it's a building is a system it's, it's not a noun it's not a single thing it's a system of all different things that are in the process of becoming something else and that's the first chapter of the book is called becoming which is basically Everything is mutable, and the things that are more complicated in system likes are more mutable than other things, which makes them in these today's world better. And that we ourselves, of course, are becoming something, and we t- to kind of fit ourselves with this emerging world of everything always becoming and being upgraded. That we have to sort of learn to to do that, and part of that is the taking the stance of the the newbie. The perpetual newbie, which is always willing to unlearn and then relearn. Sort of a Zen beginner's mind. It is. And um, it's that's easier for some people than others, but I think we all can get better at it. It's a skill. You can build it. Right. So you're not just a writer, an editor, an analyst. You're a creator and a maker. You've made a website. You've made many books. You now have just made and you know had to publish a book. How do you grapple with becoming this theme, this theme of change in your own creative projects? How do you decide which ideas to pursue and which ones to filter out? 
That's a good question because I actually began making things as a kid. I was a model train maker, then I made a nature museum, then I made a chemistry lab all before high school and continued all along. I built a house from scratch, including cutting down all the timber, et cetera. So the idea of what to do next is, you know, that, that that's the core. That's what Peter Drucker called the executive function, which is not just a matter of doing the job right. You want to make sure you do the right job, which is actually more important. And that used to be something that executives, the higher your boss used to decide. Now everybody has to decide that. So it's kind of like it's been pushed down. So deciding what you know what's the right thing to do is is really extremely difficult. And the one, I mean, as I have gotten older and have had some successful projects, the opportunities expand, and so that this job becomes even more difficult because I have more choices. And the thing that that I use recently, that the heuristic that I use recently to help is asking myself whether anybody else can or would do what I want to do or what I was thinking of doing. So the way I deal with that is is I try and, first of all, I talk about what I'm doing or, or thinking about doing to everybody who wants to listen. And I also try to give the idea away. I try to encourage other people to steal this idea and do it. And uh, oftentimes, you know, if I can't give the idea away, I'll kind of return to it and then give it a couple more tries or else try and kill it, say this is a really bad idea, I think it's stupid. And if it keeps coming back as a good idea that I can't give away, then I decide, well, then if I really want it done, I'm, I have to do it. And I'm confident that no one else is going to do it because I haven't been able to give it away. I haven't seen anybody else do it. So the job, the, the, the jobs, the projects that are given away or that I find other people doing it actually to me are a relief. It's like, oh, I don't, that was... I don't have to do that one. That one's being done by somebody else. And if someone else is working on something similar to me while I'm doing it, it's like I stop, they go on. So for me, it's a matter of finding those few projects that I like to do, that I want to do, that maybe make sense, and that I'm the only one who can do it. And that's a little bit of a process. It takes some time. I'm not fast about it, but a little slow, but... Those are the best ones because then it's kind of easy a little bit in the sense that it's going to be, you know, it's it's more of me and uh, it's a little bit more natural in that sense because there's nobody else who can do it. And so that's sort of what I'm looking for is those things that if unless I do it, no one else would do it. Right. Well, you partially answered my next question, but we can dig a little deeper because it's a great topic. So as a creator and maker, because I know you have a superpower as an editor, because I experienced that myself, but as a creator and maker on your own projects, what's your superpower? What's your sweet spot? Mm. And what kind of projects really light you up? Hmm. Yeah. In my professional realm, the place where I make my money, uh, I ask good questions and I'm often not afraid to ask the stupid question that a lot of other people are embarrassed to ask. Um, and that's been something I did all my life. And even when I was a kid, I always sat up front of the classroom. I raised my hand and I asked all the stupid questions that everybody else had in their mind, but weren't, weren't, weren't about to ask, but I did. And in interviews and stuff, I, I did the same thing. And it's not just a stupid question. It's also us asking good questions that kind of, are able to unleash some kind of insight, which I can then write down. But 
I think the kinds of things that I do don't always require questions, but they do require the kind of things I like to do are things that are just the the adjacent step. They're just one step away, but they're not an obvious step. So I like things that are I wouldn't call them hacks. They're 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 sort of things that are near but adjacent but not quite visible and i'm trying to give a good example of this well in a certain sense wired was like that the thing about wired in retrospect was it was probably inevitable somebody would do it someone would come along so it was it was sort of it was a near space it was something that was the next step that looked obvious in retrospect but at the time seemed to be a jump a leap and to outsiders, like, oh, that's an amazing thing. But to us, it was like, this is just a natural step. And it may be not unlikely, but it was a very, it's just a single step. It wasn't like two steps down the road or five steps down the road. It was just one step, but took a kind of belief that this was the center of things, even though they seemed like on the margin. Those are the kinds of things I'm looking for more often is something that's not 10 steps down the road. But just one step, but off to the side, that wasn't such an obvious step that would seem obvious in, in retrospect. Well, I had that experience with you personally when you nudged me into doing an article about MMOs when Ultima Online was in beta, was when we started. Right. And it wasn't that obvious. I told you about many projects I, my students were working on at the time, and you're like, that one, that one's interesting. You should write about that one for Wired. Like you really zoomed in on it in retrospect, duh. But at the time, it wasn't at all obvious. Yeah, and, and I think if I, when they give you a story writing class, what you always want to have is to have your characters um, have to make decisions uh, constantly. And when they're making decisions, you want it to be so that the decision seems like a real decision, but that in retrospect, it looks very obvious. Of course, they had to choose. Of course, you know, of course, Luke had to go with Obi-Wan. But, you know, at the moment, yeah, it still had to be a real decision, not between good and bad, but between two goods. And so there is that same kind of, of sense of what the decision should be unclear at, at that moment, but it should be very clear in, in retrospect. So I really want to know now to follow up on that. So you've actually, you finished your book. It's published. It's awesome. Everybody should read it. There'll be a link uh, in the show notes. And you've actually made something get done, which is hard in a becoming world, you know, to get something done. Now that that's in the can, as they say, what new trends are you most closely following? Whose work are you paying attention to? What's on your radar? I, I, I feel of all the things I've talked about, to me, the most profound disruptive, to use the, the old word, impactful thing going on and for the next 30 years is is artificial intelligence and i I think we're still underestimating the degree to which this is going to transform our lives even within 30 years so i'm trying to kind of keep up in a certain sense of trying to read what i can to not get too out of date because it's really moving very fast that's not really something new that's just trying to continue that because i think it's important and Interesting things will happen. I'm doing another project I've been working on long term and have an assistant working on that, which is I'm collecting all the existing long term forecasts into the future, the next 10 years plus. And I'm trying to take each of these forecasts, which by definition are very unreliable, 
and we're, we're trying to integrate them into a unified forecast for the next 20 years to make it kind of like, I'm trying to build a world that's based on these forecasts just to see if it could happen. This has a high likelihood of failure, but if it worked, it might be useful to people. There were some science fiction authors talking about trying to write a shared world. And so, What kind of a world? This is a near future world. This would be a world on the planet in the next, say, 25 years from now. So it's nearby. It's it's just... It's you just mean a, a digital world or a physical no, world? Just a description of a world. It, they call it world building. Like if you were to make a science fiction film... Oh, okay. Like Tolkien or yeah, like Tolkien, exactly. or like, world, I mean, like, okay, world building in the narrative uh, sense. In the narrative sense. Got it. But, okay. but these would be all the details about what does the beds look like? What do they have oh. for breakfast? So, so it's not so much the big things, it's the particulars, like, you know, the little scenarios that did in this book, Inevitable, give a little hint of like doing a little vignette of like, what would the actual world look like? But more than that, it would be a historical world, meaning that we would have every year along the way. It's like, well, how did you get to that? You'd have to, you know, you have to work back through the years. So every year there would be a, a version of that world. It's an experiment that might be useful to fiction writers. And it might be useful to people trying to make forecasts by trying to integrate it. So that's something that I'm I'm working on right now. That's probably another eight months left. And by the way, if you're already doing it, let me know. Then I won't have to have to do this because I would rather <laughs> I would rather look at that. But there's a third thing. So the thing about artificial intelligence and virtual reality and all these things is that they're very hot. Everybody's there's a lot of attention. A lot of people talking about it. A lot of energy being devoted to trying to imagine it. And I wanted to look at something that nobody was <laughs> nobody was looking at, nobody cared about. And I found something that I find really interesting. And this is me. Here I am right now. I'm going to try and give away these ideas. Hopefully someone will do it. I don't want to have to do it. But here's the thing that I'm kind of conjuring with. And that is I'm taking the idea of world government seriously. What would a functioning democratic world government look like if we decided we want one and i think we we should have one none of my friends on the left think it's a good idea none of my friends on the right thinks it's a good no one thinks it's a good idea and actually that's why i'm interested in it because it seems to me that you know it's inevitable star trek i mean every planet has to have a world government so what would that look like what does that actually you know what's the the contours how does it work what level does it we won't talk about how it got there but just like if you wanted to make it happen if you wanted to design it, it's like a design problem. You know what, though? I don't think you can talk about it as a design problem without how it got there, because it has to be a system. I would say this is where we want to go. How do we get there would be the second question. Okay, got it. Okay. Yeah, so the vision is this is where we want to go. So right. my question for you, based on just having built lots and lots and lots of systems, is what's your MVP? What's your minimum viable product? If, if you were going to go there... What's the smallest version of it that would get it going, that could get it going? For world government? Yep. That's exactly the right question to ask. And it might be possible that in one of these, you know, uh, extremely large social VR worlds, uh, like a Second Life VR, that you could play around with alternative governmental models Oh, people have for years. Most they of have. them failed. Right. Oh, my God. There's so much anthropology to be mined there. 
Exactly. So, so one would be one that worked that didn't fail. I don't know. I mean, here's what it is. I don't have any thoughts on this. I don't know anything about this. You just uh, think it's an important question. I just think it's an important question. So I have not even taken one step to trying to answer those questions. It's just that I've been telling people I think it's an important question and hoping that somebody <laughs> will come forth and say, oh, talk to someone so they have a, they have the whole thing worked out. Anyway, so that that's where I'm going. And your question about the uh, minimal viable product is, or, or even step Minimum viable system. Exactly. So- and that's really, that's at the heart of the work I do is help people find their minimum viable system. Exactly. That turns out, especially if you come out of gaming, to really be how you bring interesting things to life. I agree 100%. Thank you so much, Kevin, for sharing your time and wisdom and stories with us. I could just go on and on. And if you want to understand systems thinking, read Kevin's book. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Amy Jo. I really appreciate your attention and uh, your enthusiasm for the book. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes. 